Chapter 18 of France and England in North America, Part 3 La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. France and England in North America, Part 3 La Salle, Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 18 1680 and 1681 Enepan Among the Sioux As Enepan entered the village, he beheld a sight which caused him to invoke St. Anthony of Padua. In front of the lodges were certain stakes, to which were attached bundles of straw, intended, as he supposed, for burning him and his friends alive. His concern was redoubled when he saw the condition of the Picard du Gay, whose hair and face had been painted with diverse colors, and whose head was decorated with a tuft of white feathers. In this guise he was entering the village, followed by a crowd of Sioux, who compelled him to sing and keep time to his own music by rattling a dried gourd containing a number of pebbles. The omens, indeed, were exceedingly threatening, for treatment like this was usually followed by the speedy immolation of the captive. And Epan ascribes it to the effect of his invocations, that, being led into one of the lodges, among a throng of staring squaws and children, he and his companions were seated on the ground, and presented with large dishes of birch bark, containing a mess of wild rice, boiled with dried whortleberries, a repast which he declares to have been the best that had fallen to his lot since the day of his captivity. This soothed his fears, but as he allayed his famished appetite, he listened with anxious interest to the vehement jargon of the chiefs and warriors, who were disputing among themselves to whom the three captives should respectively belong, for it seems that, as far as related to them, the question of distribution had not yet been definitely settled. The debate ended in the assigning of Enepin to his old enemy Aquipaguetin, who, however, far from persisting in his evil designs, adopted him on the spot as his son. The three companions must now part company. Duguay, not yet quite reassured of his safety, hastened to confess himself to Enepin. But Akau proved refractory, and refused the offices of religion, which did not prevent the friar from embracing them both, as he says, with an extreme tenderness. Tired as he was, he was forced to set out with his self-styled father to his village, which was, fortunately, not far off. An unpleasant walk of a few miles through woods and marshes brought them to the borders of a sheet of water, apparently Lake Buad, where five of Aquipaguetin's wives received the party in three canoes and ferried them to an island on which the village stood. At the entrance of the chief's lodge, Enepin was met by a decrepit old Indian, withered with age, who offered him the peace-pipe and placed him on a bearskin which was spread by the fire. Here, to relieve his fatigue, for he was well-nigh spent, 
a small boy anointed his limbs with the fat of a wildcat supposed to be sovereign in these cases by reason of the great agility of that animal his new father gave him a bark platter of fish covered him with a buffalo robe and showed him six or seven of his wives who were thenceforth he was told to regard him as a son the chief's household was numerous, and his allies and relatives formed a considerable clan, of which the missionary found himself an involuntary member. He was scandalized when he saw one of his adopted brothers carrying on his back the bones of a deceased friend, wrapped in the chasubel of brocade which they had taken with other vestments from his box seeing their new relative so enfeebled that he could scarcely stand the indians made for him one of their sweating baths where they immersed him in steam three times a week a process from which he thinks he derived great benefit his strength gradually returned in spite of his meagre fare for there was a dearth of food and the squaws were less attentive to his wants than to those of their children they respected him, however, as a person endowed with occult powers, and stood in no little awe of a pocket compass which he had with him, as well as of a small metal pot with feet moulded after the face of a lion. This last seemed in their eyes a medicine of the most formidable nature, and they would not touch it without first wrapping it in a beaver skin. For the rest, Enipan made himself useful in various ways. He shaved the heads of the children, as was the custom of the tribe, bled certain asthmatic persons, and dosed others with Orviatan, the famous panacea of his time, of which he had brought with him a good supply. With respect to his missionary functions, he seems to have given himself little trouble, unless his attempt to make a Sioux vocabulary is to be regarded as preparatory to a future apostleship. I could gain nothing over them, he says, in the way of their salvation, by reason of their natural stupidity. Nevertheless, on one occasion, he baptized a sick child, naming it Antoinette, in honor of St. Anthony of Padua. It seemed to revive after the rite, but soon relapsed, and presently died, which, he writes, gave me great joy and satisfaction. In this he was like the Jesuits, who could find nothing but consolation in the death of a newly baptized infant, since it was thus assured of a paradise, which, had it lived, it would probably have forfeited by sharing in the superstitions of its parents. With respect to Enipin and his Indian father, there seems to have been little love on either side. But Oasikude, the principal chief of the Sioux of this region, was the fast friend of the three white men. He was angry that they had been robbed, which he had been unable to prevent, as the Sioux had no laws, and their chiefs little power but he spoke his mind freely, and told Aquipaguetin and the rest in full council that they were like a dog who steals a piece of meat from a dish and runs away with it. When Enipan complained of hunger, the Indians had always promised him that early in the summer he should go with them on a buffalo hunt and have food in abundance. The time at length came, and the inhabitants of all the neighboring villages prepared for departure. 
to each band was assigned its special hunting ground and he was expected to accompany his indian father to this he demurred for he feared lest aquipaguetin angry at the words of the great chief might take this opportunity to revenge the insult put upon him he therefore gave out that he expected a party of spirits that is to say frenchmen to meet him at the mouth of the wisconsin bringing a supply of goods for the indians and he declares that la salle had in fact promised to send traders to that place be this as it may the indians believed him and true or false the assertion as will be seen answered the purpose for which it was made the indians set out in a body to the number of two hundred and fifty warriors with their women and children the three frenchmen who though in different villages had occasionally met during the two months of their captivity were all of the party they descended rum river which forms the outlet of Milac and which is called the St. Francis by Ennepin. None of the Indians had offered to give him passage, and fearing lest he should be abandoned, he stood on the bank, hailing the passing canoes, and begging to be taken in. A cow and duguay presently appeared, paddling a small canoe which the Indians had given them, but they would not listen to the missionary's call and a cow who had no love for him cried out that he had paddled him long enough already two indians however took pity on him and brought him to the place of encampment where duguay tried to excuse himself for his conduct but a cow was sullen and kept aloof after reaching the mississippi the whole party encamped together opposite to the mouth of rum river pitching their tents of skin or building their bark huts on the slope of a hill by the side of the water it was a wild scene this camp of savages among whom as yet no traders had come and no handiwork of civilization had found its way the tall warriors some nearly naked some wrapped in buffalo robes and some in shirts of dressed deerskin fringed with hair and embroidered with dyed porcupine quills war clubs of stone in their hands and quivers at their backs filled with stone-headed arrows the squaws cutting smoke-dried meat with knives of flint and boiling it in rude earthen pots of their own making driving away meanwhile with shrill cries the troops of lean dogs which disputed the meal with a crew of hungry children the whole camp indeed was threatened with starvation the three white men could get no food but unripe berries from the effects of which Anipan thinks they might all have died but for timely doses of his orvietan being tired of the indians he became anxious to set out for the wisconsin to find the party of frenchmen real or imaginary who were to meet him at that place that he was permitted to do so was due to the influence of the great chief Oasikude, who always befriended him and who had soundly berated his two companions for refusing him a seat in their canoe duguay wished to go with him but a cow who liked the indian life as much as he disliked any pan preferred to remain with the hunters a small birch canoe was given to the two adventurers together with an earthen pot and they had also between them a gun 
a knife, and a robe of beaver skin. Thus equipped, they began their journey, and soon approached the falls of St. Anthony, so named by Enipan in honor of the inevitable St. Anthony of Padua. As they were carrying their canoe by the cataract, they saw five or six Indians who had gone before, and one of whom had climbed into an oak tree beside the principal fall whence in a loud and lamentable voice he was haranguing the spirit of the waters as a sacrifice to whom he had just hung a robe of beaver skin among the branches their attention was soon engrossed by another object looking over the edge of the cliff which overhung the river below the falls enipan saw a snake which as he avers was six feet long writhing upward towards the holes of the swallows in the face of the precipice in order to devour their young he pointed him out to duguay and they pelted him with stones till he fell into the river but not before his contortions and the darting of his forked tongue had so affected the picard's imagination that he was haunted that night with a terrific incubus they paddled sixty leagues down the river in the heats of july and killed no large game but a single deer the meat of which soon spoiled their main resource was the turtles whose shyness and watchfulness caused them frequent disappointments and many involuntary fasts they once captured one of more than common size and as they were endeavouring to cut off his head he was near avenging himself by snapping off hennepin's finger there was a herd of buffalo in sight on the neighbouring prairie and duguay went with his gun in pursuit of them leaving the turtle in Anipan's custody. Scarcely was he gone when the friar, raising his eyes, saw that their canoe, which they had left at the edge of the water, had floated out into the current. Hastily turning the turtle on his back, he covered him with his habit of St. Francis, on which, for greater security, he laid a number of stones and then, being a good swimmer, struck out in pursuit of the canoe, which he at length overtook. Finding that it would overset if he tried to climb into it, he pushed it before him to the shore, and then paddled towards the place at some distance above where he had left the turtle. He had no sooner reached it than he heard a strange sound, and beheld a long line of buffalo, bulls, cows, and calves, entering the water not far off, to cross to the western bank. Having no gun, as became his apostolic vocation, he shouted to Duguay, who presently appeared, running in all haste, and they both paddled in pursuit of the game. Duguay aimed at a young cow, and shot her in the head. She fell in shallow water near an island, where some of the herd had landed, and being unable to drag her out, they waded into the water and butchered her where she lay. It was forty-eight hours since they had tasted food, and Epin made a fire, while Duguay cut up the meat. They feasted so bountifully that they both fell ill and were forced to remain two days on the island, taking doses of Orvietan, before they were able to resume their journey. Apparently they were not sufficiently versed in woodcraft to smoke the meat of the cow, and the hot sun soon robbed them of it. 
they had a few fish hooks but were not always successful in the use of them on one occasion being nearly famished they set their line and lay watching it uttering prayers in turn suddenly there was a great turmoil in the water duguay ran to the line and with the help of ennepan drew in two large catfish the eagles or fish-hawks now and then dropped a newly caught fish of which they gladly took possession and once they found a purveyor in an otter which they saw by the bank devouring some object of an appearance so wonderful that duguay cried out that he had a devil between his paws they scared him from his prey which proved to be a spade-fish or as ennepan correctly describes it a species of sturgeon with a bony projection from his snout in the shape of a paddle they broke their fast upon him undeterred by this eccentric appendage if ennepan had had an eye for scenery he would have found in these his vagabond rovings wherewith to console himself in some measure for his frequent fasts the young mississippi fresh from its northern springs unstained as yet by unhallowed union with the riotous missouri flowed calmly on its way amid strange and unique beauties a wilderness clothed with velvet grass forest-shadowed valleys lofty heights whose smooth slopes seemed levelled with the scythe domes and pinnacles ramparts and ruined towers the work of no human hand the canoe of the voyagers, borne on the tranquil current, glided in the shade of grey crags festooned with honeysuckles, by trees mantled with wild grapevines, dells bright with the flowers of the white euphorbia, the blue gentian, and the purple balm, and matted forests where the red squirrels leaped and chattered. They passed the great cliff whence the Indian maiden threw herself in her despair, and lake pepin lay before them slumbering in the july sun the far-reaching sheets of sparkling water the woody slopes the tower-like crags the grassy heights basking in sunlight or shadowed by the passing cloud all the fair outline of its graceful scenery the finished and polished masterwork of nature and when at evening they made their bivouac fire and drew up their canoe while dim sultry clouds veiled the west and the flashes of the silent heat-lightning gleamed on the leaden water they could listen as they smoked their pipes to the mournful cry of the whippoorwills and the quavering scream of the owls other thoughts than the study of the picturesque occupied the mind of Ennepin when one day he saw his Indian father, Aguipaguetin, whom he had supposed five hundred miles distant, descended the river with ten warriors in canoes. He was eager to be the first to meet the traders, who, as Ennepin had given out, were to come with their goods to the mouth of the Wisconsin the two travellers trembled for the consequences of this encounter but the chief after a short colloquy passed on his way in three days he returned in ill humour having found no traders at the appointed spot the picard was absent at the time looking for game and ennepin was sitting under the shade of his blanket which he had stretched on forked sticks to protect him from the sun when he saw his adopted father approaching with a threatening look and a war-club in his hand 
He attempted no violence, however, but suffered his wrath to exhale in a severe scolding, after which he resumed his course up the river with his warriors. If Ennepin, as he avers, really expected a party of traders at the Wisconsin, the course he now took is sufficiently explicable. If he did not expect them, his obvious course was to rejoin Tonti on the Illinois, for which he seems to have had no inclination, or to return to Canada by way of the Wisconsin, an attempt which involved the risk of starvation, as the two travelers had but ten charges of powder left. Assuming then his hope of the traders to have been real, he and Duguay resolved in the meantime to join a large body of Sioux hunters, who, as Equipaguetin had told them, were on a stream which he calls Bull River, now the Chippeway, entering the Mississippi near Lake Pepin. By so doing they would gain a supply of food and save themselves from the danger of encountering parties of roving warriors. They found this band, among whom was their companion Akau, and followed them on a grand hunt along the borders of the Mississippi. Duguay was separated for a time from Ennepin, who was placed in a canoe with a withered squaw more than eighty years old. In spite of her age, she handled her paddle with great address, and used it vigorously, as occasion required, to repress the gambols of three children, who, to Annabon's annoyance, occupied the middle of the canoe. The hunt was successful. The Sioux warriors, active as deer, chased the buffalo on foot with their stone-headed arrows on the plains behind the heights that bordered the river while the old men stood sentinels at the top, watching for the approach of enemies. One day an alarm was given. The warriors rushed toward the supposed point of danger, but found nothing more formidable than two squaws of their own nation, who brought strange news. A war-party of Sioux, they said, had gone towards Lake Superior, and had met by the way five spirits, that is to say, five Europeans. Ennepin was full of curiosity to learn who the strangers might be, and they, on their part, were said to have shown great anxiety to know the nationality of the three white men who, as they were told, were on the river. The hunt was over, and the hunters, with Ennepin and his companion, were on their way northward to their towns, when they met the five spirits, at some distance below the falls of St. Anthony. They proved to be Daniel Gresselon de Lutte, with four well-armed Frenchmen. This bold and enterprising man, stigmatized by the Intendant du Chenot as a leader of Coureur du Bois, was a cousin of Tanti, born at Lyon. He belonged to that caste of the lesser nobles whose name was Legion, and whose admirable military qualities shone forth so conspicuously in the wars of Louis the Fourteenth, Though his enterprises were independent of those of La Salle, they were at this time carried on in connection with Count Frontenac and certain merchants in his interest, of whom Duluth's uncle Patron was one, while Louvigny, his brother-in-law, was in alliance with the governor, and was an officer of his guard. Here, then, was a kind of family league, countenanced by Frontenac, 
and acting conjointly with him, in order, if the angry letters of the intendant are to be believed, to reap a clandestine profit under the shadow of the governor's authority, and in violation of the royal ordinances. The rudest part of the work fell to the share of Deloux, who with a persistent hardihood not surpassed perhaps even by la salle was continually in the forest in the indian towns or in remote wilderness outposts planted by himself exploring trading fighting ruling lawless savages and whites scarcely less ungovernable and on one or more occasions varying his life by crossing the ocean to gain interviews with the colonial minister Senilet, amid the splendid vanities of versailles strange to say this man of hardy enterprise was a martyr to the gout which for more than a quarter of a century grievously tormented him though for a time he thought himself cured by the intercession of the iroquois saint catherine tegacuita to whom he had made a vow to that end he was without doubt an habitual breaker of the royal ordinances regulating the fur trade yet his services were great to the colony and to the crown and his name deserves a place of honor among the pioneers of american civilization when enipan met him he had been about two years in the wilderness in september sixteen seventy eight he left quebec for the purpose of exploring the region of the upper mississippi and establishing relations of friendship with the sioux and their kindred the assiniboins in the summer of sixteen seventy nine he visited three large towns of the eastern division of the sioux including those visited by enipan in the following year and planted the king's arms in all of them Early in the autumn he was at the head of Lake Superior, holding a council with the Assiniboine and the Lake tribes, and inducing them to live at peace with the Sioux. In all this he acted in a public capacity, under the authority of the governor, but it is not to be supposed that he forgot his own interests or those of his associates. The intendant angrily complains that he aided and abetted the Coureurs du Bois in their lawless courses, and sent down in their canoes great quantities of beaver skins consigned to the merchants in league with him, under cover of whose names the governor reaped his share of the profits. In June 1680, while Enipan was in the Sioux villages, Duloux set out from the head of Lake Superior with two canoes, four Frenchmen, and an Indian, to continue his explorations. He ascended a river, apparently the burnt wood, and reached from thence a branch of the Mississippi, which seems to have been the St. Croix. It was now that, to his surprise, he learned that there were three Europeans on the main river below, and fearing that they might be Englishmen or Spaniards encroaching on the territories of the king, he eagerly pressed forward to solve his doubts. When he saw Enipan, his mind was set at rest, and the travelers met with mutual cordiality. They followed the Indians to their villages of Milac where Enipan had now no reason to complain of their treatment of him. The Sioux gave him and Duluth a grand feast of honor, at which were seated a hundred and twenty naked guests, 
and the great chief Oasikude, with his own hands, placed before Enipan a bark dish containing a mess of smoked meat and wild rice. Autumn had come, and the travellers bethought them of going home. The Sioux, consoled by their promises to return with goods for trade, did not oppose their departure, and they set out together, eight white men in all. As they passed St. Anthony's Falls, two of the men stole two buffalo robes, which were hung on trees as offerings to the spirit of the cataract. When Duluth heard of it, he was very angry, telling the men that they had endangered the lives of the whole party. And Epan admitted that in the view of human prudence, he was right, but urged that the act was good and praiseworthy, inasmuch as the offerings were made to a false god while the men, on their part, proved mutinous, declaring that they wanted the robes and meant to keep them. The travellers continued their journey in great ill-humour, but were presently soothed by the excellent hunting which they found on the way. As they approached the Wisconsin, they stopped to dry the meat of the buffalo they had killed, when to their amazement they saw a war-party of Sioux approaching in a fleet of canoes, and Epan represents himself as showing on this occasion an extraordinary courage, going to meet the Indians with a peace pipe, and instructing Dulu, who knew more of these matters than he, how he ought to behave. The Sioux proved not unfriendly, and said nothing of the theft of the buffalo robes. They soon went on their way to attack the Illinois and Missouris, leaving the Frenchmen to ascend the Wisconsin unmolested. After various adventures, they reach the station of the Jesuits at Green Bay, but its existence is wholly ignored by Enipan, whose zeal for his own order will not permit him to allude to this establishment of the rival missionaries. He is equally reticent with regard to the Jesuit mission at Michilimackinac, where the party soon after arrived, and where they spent the winter. The only intimation which he gives of its existence consists in the mention of the Jesuit Pearson, who was a Fleming like himself, and who often skated with him on the frozen lake, or kept him company in fishing through a hole in the ice. When the spring opened, and a bound descended Lake Huron, followed the Detroit to Lake Erie, and proceeded thence to Niagara. Here he spent some time in making a fresh examination of the cataract, and then resumed his voyage on Lake Ontario. He stopped, however, at the great town of the Senecas, near the Genesee, where, with his usual spirit of meddling, he took upon him the functions of the civil and military authorities, convoked the chiefs to a council, and urged them to set at liberty certain Ottawa prisoners, whom they had captured in violation of treaties. Having settled this affair to his satisfaction, he went to Fort Frontenac, where his brother missionary, Buisset, received him with a welcome rendered the warmer by a story which had reached him that the Indians had hanged Enipan with his own court of St. Francis. From Fort Frontenac he went to Montreal, and leaving his two men on a neighboring island that they might escape the payment of duties on a quantity of furs which they had with them, he paddled alone towards the town. 
Count Fontenac chanced to be here, and looking from the window of a house near the river, he saw approaching in a canoe a Recollet father, whose appearance indicated the extremity of hard service, for his face was worn and sunburnt, and his tattered habit of St. Francis was abundantly patched with scraps of buffalo skin. When at length he recognized the long-lost Enipan, he received him, as the father writes, with all the tenderness which a missionary could expect from a person of his rank and quality. He kept him for twelve days in his own house, and listened with interest to such of his adventures as the friar sought fit to divulge. And here we bid farewell to Father Enipan. Providence, he writes, preserved my life that I might make known my great discoveries to the world. He soon after went to Europe, where the story of his travels found a host of readers, but where he died at last in a deserved obscurity. End of chapter 18